Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. President Donald Trump has no record of public service, but he does have a record in business and on TV. In our latest round of stories, we introduce you to the people who were there as he built an empire and a name. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're an actor, accents are just full of pitfalls. I mean, you could mess up one vowel and all of a sudden the people of Philadelphia are after you, throwing tasty cakes at you. It's so easy to get a part in a movie and do a voice like Foghorn Leghorn or just go like, uh, I parked my car in Harvard Yard, you know, even if you're a great actor. But Amy Ryan, she always gets it right. And she tries to stay immersed in it, but not like crazy immersed in it. But I don't go that far where, you know, when I'm back offset and I'm at the, you know, Starbucks, I'm not like throwing out the accent to strangers on the street. Because I feel like that'll be the one time someone recognizes me from that actress from New York who's now suddenly oddly speaking with a Southern accent. It's bullseye. Coming up, Amy Ryan. You've seen her on The Wire, in The Office, Gone Baby Gone. She was nominated for an Oscar for that one. She's starring in the new movie, Abundant Acreage Available. She'll talk to me about all that stuff, plus the time that she convinced her dad skipping college to become an actor was a good idea. I remember that moment, sliding my first paycheck across the table. And it was more than my dad made. He was very happy. (laughs) Then I'll talk with Shea Serrano. He wrote for Grantland and Vice. Now he's a writer for The Ringer, as well as the leader of his own online cult of personality. Before he took up writing full-time, he taught middle school science for nine years. If you've ever struggled to win over the hearts and minds of teenagers, well, now is the time to listen in, because Shea Serrano has the answer. If you give a kid a nickname, that kid will run through a wall for you. That's all it is, because they know you care at least a little bit about them. I was taking names from, like, old movies I saw. Oh, these two kids are always hanging out together. You guys are Turbo and Ozone. Like, why are you calling us Turbo and Ozone? I tried to explain this from an old breakdancing movie. It didn't make any sense to them. Makes sense. Shout out to my producer, Kevin Electro Rock Ferguson. Then later on, I'll talk about the team that had the worst record in all of baseball this year and why I love them. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When you see Amy Ryan act, there's something about her that just kind of gets in your head. Maybe you saw her on The Wire. She was Beatty, the port cop, who ends up dating one of the main characters. She's sort of plain-spoken, salt of the earth, a little vulnerable, too. Or maybe you saw her in Gone Baby Gone, where she earned herself an Academy Award nomination. Or maybe you saw her being hilarious on The Office, where she played Steve Carell's character's girlfriend, Holly. All of those are great supporting roles. But now, in the new movie, Abundant Acreage Available, Amy Ryan is taking the lead. The movie centers around Amy's character, Tracy, and her relationship with her brother, Jesse. He's played by Terry Kinney. 
Tracy and Jesse's father just died. And while the two siblings kind of hash things out, they're visited by a group of strangers who say their family owned the farm when they were kids. In this scene, Tracy is burying her father's cremated remains in the fields of his tobacco farm. But her brother is very seriously religious, and he thinks they should have a more formal funeral. I'm putting him here, Jesse, in the earth, right here, right now. You don't like it, you could take a flying leap. What do you want? You want to put him up at that columbarium at Prospect United Methodist? Maybe we go visit him once a week or a month, bring him some flowers that'll just die and wilt in front of him? The way it's done, with a ceremony, and Pastor Goodwood, not that new girl. This is his place, here with us, with his two kids on his farm where he spent his life. This is where he should be for eternity. Amy Ryan, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Amy Ryan, you're a very gifted actress in many areas and categories. However, one thing that you are famous for is not messing up accents. Um, (laughs) And I I know that that's like one of the more technical and less artistic parts of acting, and we'll talk about uh, art stuff in a minute. But uh, what do you have to do to not mess up an accent? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I think not make fun of the people that you're trying to portray. Um, that's Well, at least that's what I'm always trying to go for. Uh, but I don't go that far where, it, you know, when I'm back offset and I'm at the, you know, Starbucks, I'm not, like, throwing out the accent to strangers on the street. Because <laughs> I feel like that'll be the one time someone recognizes me from that actress from New York <laughs> who's now suddenly oddly speaking with a Southern accent. <laughs> I mean, you were nominated for an Oscar for a movie, Gone Baby Gone, which was, I mean, it felt like part of the premise of the film was, what if there was a movie set in Boston that wasn't making fun of the fact that it was set in Boston? Yeah. Um, I remember before we started filming that, um, Ben Affleck said to me, he said, you know, this being my first film... It may turn out that I'm not a good director, but I know one thing. I'm going to get Boston right, finally. <laughs> you know, I'll be the one to do it. And and I think he set the bar high with um, Ben and John Toll, went out and shot B-roll footage of locals and just kind of captured them on their porches or, you know, kids playing in the street and then intercut that through the movie. And he handed us that footage before we started filming, and he told us all, like, you have to... It's your job to blend in with them. I'm not asking them to blend in to us, so that's your challenge there. And it was actually very helpful to have that visual um, before the film, before we shot any. You're from Flushing in Queens. Are there things about Flushing that seem definitional to you, like if you were in Ben Affleck's position making Gone Baby Gone? Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> there are things that like people don't get about it. Um yeah, in terms of like the sound, I was at friends of you know, other actor friends might ask me if her queen's accent. I was like it's one long word with many syllables. There's no, <laughs> you know, so it's do you want to, you know, do you want to get a hot dog? Like there's nothing cutting it and, you know, there's no there's no diction. <laughs> and the subtext behind everything is pretty much, you know, why are you asking me why are you such a effing jerk? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, you know, what time is it? Why? I don't know. Why are you asking? You know, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're used to maybe being 
beat up upon in the scheme of the five boroughs. We know we're not the top of the list, so <laughs> we're fighting. But now, you know, I'm very proud of Queens. It's the most diverse borough with the most languages spoken in all of New York, so I root for it. Were you proud of being from Queens when you lived in Queens as a kid and as a teenager? I was until I started going to school in Manhattan, and they told me that I, I'm from Queens. So, <laughs> you know, in the teenage years, <laughs> I loved where I grew up. We were able to just play in the street and play kickball, and it was fun. But I did, I, as I got older, I thought, well, there is another world out there I want to see, and I was, I was eager to move on. Why did you go to uh, high school in Manhattan? Oh, I went to... Uh, uh, performing Arts High School, which is now called LaGuardia. So I I wanted to study theater, and it's a it's a great place to do it, and it also being a public school. So, Did you see yourself from the beginning as someone who aspired to be a character actor? Um, I probably didn't know that term when I was in the sixth grade, you know? <laughs> I only just knew actor or actress. Um, but, you know, when... When I was 18 and started auditioning for the first time, it just so happened I was cast in a play. It was the first job, but I was going out for film and TV and such. But so at that young age, I was like, well, I'm a theater actor. That's what I am. I was just so happy to be told what I was then because I was just so grateful to be working. Um, so I think as I started getting cast in character parts, even in theater, I was like, well, I'm a character actress. This is great. So, no, I can't really say that I designed that, but looking back on just things I used to do at home to make my family laugh and such, it was always character-based, whether it was just impersonating every member of my family or, you know, um, but yeah, it was never like playing some glamorous old movie star, you know, it was always more for comic effect and more put on a funny old gray wig than um, some glamorous blonde, you know, get up. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Amy Ryan. She stars in the new movie Abundant Acreage Available. It's out now. Abundant Acreage Available is your first leading part in a movie, right? It is, yes. Was that by design on your part or a function a, a function of the way that show business works or, or what I mix of the I think it two? was just a weird uh, luck of the draw timing and such. No, it wasn't. It's not that I had suddenly had a conversation with my agent and say, like, I only want to do leads and that's it. I'm not going to work unless that comes along. It was um, more that uh, Angus McLaughlin had worked with some clients at my agent's on his previous film and had a relationship with them. And he sent along this next script and that agent sent it to my agent. And that's how that started. Um I guess he trusted them. <laughs> uh, and so then I, you know, I read it and I was, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Uh, and it's a bit nerve wracking, you know, suddenly like when you're not the lead and it doesn't go well, you can, you know, just say, well, that was somebody else's party. But um, when you stand up for a script in a world and, you know, I did think the first time the screen to Tribeca, was the first time I was really nervous in a screen, I thought, oh, can I hold all their attention? You know, it's me here in every scene. Am I? Are they going to get bored? Are they going to get restless? You know, so it was a little nerve wracking watching it. I mean, it's something that you could have chosen. I mean, I'm not suggesting that. Uh, I'm not suggesting that your path was um, inevitably going to make you Angelina Jolie or something like that. 
But when you were nominated for an Oscar, you could have said that what I'm going to do with this juice that I have is be the star of, at the, at the very least, you know, Sundance movies. Um, mm-hmm. And you went a very different way yeah, well, when that the, happened. The scripts after the Oscars, a lot of them were redundant in that suddenly I was I was, I was just being offered drug-addicted moms, and they were leads of films, but I was like, well... Why? Why would I? Why would I try to top, you know, Gone Baby Gone next? <laughs> it's one thing to go back and revisit it as I get older, you know. Um, but why would I do that? So I just thought it was a lack of imagination on on certain avenues, you know, certain studios and such. So I I said to my agent, I said, "What would shock anybody is if suddenly I um, look put together and I'm a professional." playing a professional woman and I have a hairdo and I wear skirts and heels and you know um and if I do a comedy that'll really surprise everybody and I was such a huge fan of the office and just so happened they were huge fans of the wire and the two kind of met up at the same time well I loved your performance on the office so much and you know the central magic trick of the office is, you know, Steve Carell is so wonderfully sweet as a performer. He's just such a likable mm-hmm. performer that he can act like an ass yeah. for 20 minutes every week, and you still don't hate him. You're still not annoyed that he's there. <laughs> yeah. And you had a, a really genuinely formidable acting challenge, which is figure out how someone could fall in love with this ass. or even just like him I have to credit the writers because they set it up so perfectly and as you say like it's already established that he does really asinine things and everyone grits their teeth and takes a deep breath and I I forgot which episode it is in particular but there's one thing he says that's kind of so offensive to her and there's this shock on her face for a moment you think it's going to be the regular stuff and then she you know she breaks out this huge smile (laughs) like plays along with him you thought oh my god well there's a lid for every pot you know they're just a match made in heaven and I think she's you know she's just as odd and goofy you know she might not show it as much but she's she's kind of a spaz too in that way (laughs) (laughs) and uh, it was just so fun to do it and uh, you know I remember before each take, I was like, oh, my God, I feel this really, this is going to be really embarrassing. <laughs> but just going for it. I mean, it was Steve. He's just so incredible to work with. I mean, there are a few episodes of the show where your character really fully matches him for shamelessness. There's one where you do like an impromptu parody of Slumdog Millionaire. Um. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Are you ready to play Slum Dunder Mifflinaire? Yes, I am. For $100, where did Dunder meet Mifflin? A, on Easy Street. B, a tour of Dartmouth College. C, they never met. D, brushing their teeth. Oh, I'm thinking. I'm going to say B, Tour of Dartmouth College. 
That is correct. <laughs> I remember when we filmed that scene because there's uh, like you know the audience of the it was like what was that on the field like the big the it's like know, field, field day, day like, for thunder. the office yeah, yeah exactly yeah but so we had probably a hundred extras there and they're directed to not laugh <laughs> <laughs> the performer and you going out on stage and not getting laughs even though it's right for the scene just felt awful <laughs> like you and I would be back like I don't want to go out there again. <laughs> Um, I, I want to play a little bit of you on the wire, which, as you said, is sort of the the role that, in some ways, made your career. I mean, you had had a very healthy career um, doing television guest appearances and theater and all kinds of things for uh, ten or fifteen years before you got on the wire. But I mean, it's the first thing I saw you in, and I thought, "Wow, this lady is amazing." So the, the Wire, of course, was about this team of detectives and this uh, this uh, this neighborhood and gang that they are sort of trying to pull the pieces apart of. And in the second season of the show, uh, they are assigned to the docks in Baltimore where the show is set. And your character's name is Beatty Russell. Uh, she is a, a harbor policewoman. And she's also a single parent, and she gets into a relationship with, uh, I guess, probably the the lead character on, on the show, uh, Jimmy McNulty, who's uh, played by Dominic West. This is actually seen from from the fifth season. He's sort of passed in and out of the show after that second mm-hmm. season. Yeah. And McNulty is an alcoholic and is been drinking a lot, and he's moved in with you, but he's also away a lot. Um, and he's very evasive and very distant. And in this scene, you're, you're basically just trying to get through to him. All the guys at the bar, Jimmy, all the girls, they don't show up at your wake. You're not because they don't like you, but because they never knew your last name. And a month later, someone tells them, oh, Jimmy died. Jimmy who? Jimmy the cop. Oh, they say, him. And all the people on the job, all the people you spent all those hours in the radio car with, the guys with their feet up on their desk telling stories, who shorted you on the food runs, who signed your overtime slips. In the end, they're not going to be there either. Family, that's it. Family. And if you're lucky, one or two friends who are the same as family. That's all the best of us get. I think that one of the beautiful things about uh, your character on The Wire was that while she was a police officer and a competent one, she also was a, just a lady, you know? Well, thank you. <laughs> like, <laughs> none of that, but I mean, like, none of that magical detective quality that yeah. uh, TV police officers often have. Like, basically, the only kinds of TV police officers usually are either magical detectives or, like, brutish, uh, <laughs> you know, lunks. Mm-hmm. And she feels like a perfectly fallible but pretty nice human being. Well, that's nice. I mean, the, one of my favorite things of The Wire is, you know, it's it's the good guys do really bad things and the bad guys do really good things. Like, it's human. So you get to see all sides of it. And, you know, here here's B.D. Russell fell into a, a huge investigation, but it's not, you know, she's like... I, I have two kids at home. Like, she almost doesn't have time for this to be swept up. You know, you see her when you first are introduced to that character. She's in a patrol car in a, you know, pretty 
kind of easygoing job patrolling the docks, and she's wearing headphones. She's tuned out, you know. And that's, you know, even even Beatty, she's not, she's a nice person, but she's not there. And then suddenly she's thrown, literally thrown into the deep end, and she's in over her head, and she still has to manage home life. And, and later on, as you say, like, you know, uh, kind of personal life with McNulty like it's um but I just feel like those from the get-go the wire which is also they show all sides to all these characters which is also a feat because there's something like over 200 characters in the whole five years I love them all so much Amy (laughs) I don't blame you I love them too (laughs) I'm very proud of that show We'll continue my conversation with Amy Ryan after a quick break. Coming up, hey, kids, want to skip college, move to New York, give acting a go? Amy Ryan's got some great tips on how to do it. Fame is guaranteed. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 220.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Amy Ryan. You've seen her in The Wire, The Office, Gone Baby Gone, Birdman, a bunch more. She's starring in the new movie, Abundant Acreage Available. I want to ask you a couple things about Abundant Acreage Available, your new movie. It's about this relationship between a brother and a sister. Mm -hmm. And you have siblings, right? I do. I have two older sisters. What's your relationship like with your older sisters? Um, Well, we, we like each other. I think we're very different, but we like each other very much. How are they different from you? Just that they're not, like, I remember once just walking them out onto a stage in a theater I was working at and thinking they would enjoy it, too. And they were horrified by it. And it wasn't even an audience. (laughs) They were like, how could you do this? This is crazy. Why would you do that? You know? (laughs) But, um you know, th- I mean, that's just one one simple way we're different. Um, I, I want to play a scene from Abundant Acreage Available. So there's this family that essentially it's you and your brother, uh, and it opens with the scene that we heard at the beginning of the interview where the two of you are br- burying your father. And w- within a few days, uh, this family of three brothers shows up on your property in a mm-hmm. tent. Um, they say their car broke down. And it turns out that they apparently uh, grew up on this farm that you and your brother own. Mm-hmm. Much of the film is about trying to figure out who wants to take the farm and who wants to get away from the farm. And you and your brother are in conflict over this. And it, it seems like these three guys are, are there to take the farm. It's, it's mm-hmm. a little hard to tell. And they've just kind of stuck around. They keep inviting themselves to stay. <laughs> yes. And uh, in this scene, they're just starting to wear out their welcome with you. Did you get a good look at that field? Uh, yeah. Tomorrow we want to tour downtown East Bend, see what's changed. How long are you going to hang around? Trace, 
You can't stay out there. Well, we, we don't need to put you out. No, no. This isn't a campground. Well, we got our tent, little Coleman stove. You know, we'll be fine. No, I'm saying you can't stay on our land. <laughs> you don't have to worry about us. We've always been campers. Well, okay, maybe we should go start making our lunch. Oh, now that's just stupid. I'm making lunch. <laughs> that's such an intense scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, like... I mean, she, yeah, she wants them gone, yet she has her manners that if someone's at the house, you give them lunch. <laughs> you know? um, she's the character's such a doer. You know, she only knows, like, work the land, make lunch, you know, take care of other people. So she's just in what she knows. That's one of the sort of the themes of the story is, you know, some of us have ideas of what our life should be or like what we should achieve and the reality of life, which is that so much of it is about putting one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. And your brother's character is very religious and he kind of he, he preys on it, you know. And one of the interesting things to me about your relationship is that you have this fundamental, enormous tension between the two of you. Your character wants to keep doing what you've been doing, and his character doesn't. And that your relationship as siblings carries you through that in this weird, tortured way. Yeah. I mean, Angus, when he's, you know, one of his inspirations for writing this film was he came across a photo in um, the New York Times, and it was just a, a photo of three old old men turned out they were brothers and they were walking on a field somewhere in Poland and he just had this idea of like what is what are the relationships with older siblings you know we see in film also often younger siblings fighting not getting along and such and what is it in you know the age categories that this film depicts and the beauty of like Tracy and Jesse and Jesse played by Terry Kinney and Tracy played by me they're polar opposites she's not religious at all you know, he, he talks about, you know, the devil got inside someone, and she's like, oh, stop. It was just a blood burst vessel. That's what caused her stroke. Um, she's more practical and pragmatic. Um, but yet there is a love there for each other. They give room for each other in the parts that they don't understand about one another. Um, and what do you do when, to the film, like, they lose their father, and now what? Like you say, and they're they're off. Like, what... He wants to go. She wants to stay, you know. I'm sure, like, fighting over land and property when families die is very common with many, many families. Um, but they manage to keep their individuality throughout it. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the actress Amy Ryan. Do you think your siblings think it's cool that you're a movie star or annoying? Um, they better think it's cool. No, <laughs> no I don't think. No, the, no, they, Ooh, they they, they, they've been so. <laughs> they've been so supportive. My whole family, you know, um, my family, my sisters, my my parents, my dad when he's alive. Like they never, they never put a pressure on that. They were happy. I was happy. Um, and that's like the greatest gift you can give to any um, actor is like leave them be. You know, support them, but leave them be. Was that true when you decided to work out of high school instead of going off to college? Well, in the beginning, I remember, like, my dad my dad was a little more reluctant. He's like, what do you mean, you know, you're an actor, and when are you going to come work for me? Or, you know, it was this great moment, I remember one time. And it's just, 
it's just about not knowing the territory and what it means and um, working in the theater or working or traveling to go work in the theater, which scared my dad. But I remember my mom slammed her hand down on the table once at a restaurant we're all at, and she just said, you know, she's doing what she wants. And that was that was it. It was never spoken about again. And my dad was he was very proud. I was actually talking about this. I I, I just give as much support as I can, like to uh, students at LaGuardia Community College uh, out in Queens. And I was um, in a discussion with a group of them just yesterday. And they said, the, one of the questions they were saying, like, well, what do you do? Like, I want, I want to be an international lawyer. And I come from a very traditional Pakistani family. Um, my father wants me to be married at 18. How did you convince your family um, that what you were doing was right for you? And I said, it's They'll come around in time, but there is this moment when you slide a paycheck across the table to them, and they see that you're making money at something you love. They kind of calm down because I feel like it's about parents are worried. They just they just worry about their children all the time. So it's not that they don't want them to be off on some adventure, but it's like it's, it'll be okay. And I remember that moment sliding my first paycheck across the table, and it was more than my dad made. He was very happy, <laughs> so, so it was okay. You're a parent, right? I am, yeah. I have an eight-year-old daughter. What if she told you that she was going to become an actor? I'd let her, yeah, if she wants to. Let her at least try it. If I tell her no to everything, then she's going to, you know, first of all, not be able to explore that side of her. Um, and uh, I, I don't, I don't want to have that onus. I don't want to ruin her <laughs> she wants to go do it she should do it <laughs> absolutely i don't want to tell my kids they can't go into entertainment but there's definitely a part of me that wants to trick my kids into not <laughs> wanting that <laughs> yeah you i mean know? yeah she has it both you know she's been on sets with her dad um, and, you know, she passes posters of Abby and Alana on Broad City, and she's like, "Those, there's Abby and Alana. There's my, Eric works on Broad City now. And so, like, there's a lot of that comes into our house, our world, that she thinks is day-to-day that must come into everybody's household. Everybody must know Abby and Alana. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and they should. <laughs> if you if you can, you'd be very happy. <laughs> but, but, um, but she's funny. She takes after her dad. She's funny. You're pretty funny, too, Amy Ryan. Give me a break. You're super funny. <laughs> well, well, I didn't say she was super funny. I said she's funny. <laughs> no, that's going to haunt me when she's older. This, this recording will haunt me. <laughs> Great. Screwed. Well, Amy Ryan, I'm so grateful to you for t- t- taking all this time to come on Bullseye. It's just such a joy to get to talk to you. I admire your work so much. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Amy Ryan, ladies and gentlemen. Go see Abundant Acreage available if you can. It's in theaters in New York City right now. We'll have a link to the trailer on our website. Just find the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Shea Serrano. He's a writer. He's covered basketball and music and other things for ESPN and Vice and The Ringer and more. He's on the staff at The Ringer now. He took kind of an unusual path to making a career out of it. He was born and raised in Texas. and He was originally a teacher who kind of wrote in his spare time. He only started writing full-time a little over two years ago. 
He wrote his first book around then, too, The Rap Yearbook. It's a New York Times bestseller, a critical favorite. He's just followed that up with his second book. It's called Basketball and Other Things. It's kind of like a late-night party discussion with friends, but written out and also illustrated. Serrano talks about stuff like the greatest basketball villains, which NBA players get remembered for the wrong reasons, and he asks important questions like, was Kobe Bryant a dork? Shay joins me now from NPR in New York. Shay Serrano, welcome to Bullseye. Great to have you on the show. Oh, man, I appreciate y'all having me. So why basketball? What's so great about basketball? What's so great about basketball? <laughs> Basketball's the best sport on the planet, Jesse. How dare you? I'm, How dare you ask me that question? I'm a big baseball fan, so... I mean, I'm a, base, I'm a basketball fan, too, but I, I love baseball, so that's why I'm allowed to challenge you with that question. Oh, my goodness. You know what? I, um, one time this guy asked me if I wanted to play baseball. Like a kid in my neighborhood. He's like, yo, you want to go play a baseball game with us? I said, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let's go try that. And then I was just standing there for like three hours, and I was like, when does the game start? And he said, yo, good good game today. <laughs> like I was playing an outfield, turned out, and that was the end of the game for me. So let's talk a little bit about how you started uh, your career as a writer. Um, you didn't go to college to be a writer, and and from what I gather, you basically didn't aspire to be a writer. Is that true? Those are both correct statements, sir. So how did you end up becoming a writer? Because becoming a professional writer is, spoiler alert, very difficult. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. I uh, So what ended up happening was I was a teacher at the time. I was a teacher. My wife was a teacher. And the plan was we were we were getting married, we were going to have kids, we were going to live the rest of our lives as teachers for 35 years or whatever, and that was going to be the life we built together. And then uh, she got pregnant with the twins, and about four months into the pregnancy, we had this is a longer story than needs to be told here, but basically the short version is she had a bunch of complications with the pregnancy. She ended up having to go on bed rest for the remainder of the pregnancy, which ended up being about four months. So she's on bed rest for those four months, and we were trying to survive on just a teacher salary, which when I was in Houston that first year, I think I was making like $44,000 a year or something, which is not nearly nearly enough. You know, every two weeks you get a check for $1,200 or something. And uh, so I, we needed extra money, and I was trying to figure it out, and I was applying to places like Target or, or Papado, and I went on an interview or two, and both times... The person interviewing me told me that they weren't going to hire me because I already had a full-time job. So I needed something I could do in my own time. So I was literally at home Googling work-from-home jobs, and writer was one of them. And I was like, bang, I'll just be a writer then, I guess. And uh, Houston is a big city. There are a bunch of little tiny newspapers that maybe only people in Houston know about that just cover certain neighborhoods. So I started grabbing all of those, contacting those people, telling them, you know, I'm a new writer in town and pitching them ideas. And, you know, it, it took maybe a couple of months for, for me to get my feet under me and figure out what I was doing. But w once I did, I was able to make a little bit of money doing this, you know, $20 here, $50 there, or whatever. And I was able to just build it up. And over that period of time, my wife had the, the, the boys, and she was taking care of them. And then she was also, like, supporting me in this new writing career that I was trying to do all of a sudden. And she was probably my first 
actual letter because she's much more intelligent than I am. She actually had experience in writing, so she would like edit the pieces or show me what I was doing wrong. And after about a year, we we figured out we were able to survive on just the teaching plus writing. So we made the decision that she was going to stay home with the with the kids, and then she started a photography career, which she eventually was able to chase down. And I was teaching and 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 writing, and that was you know eight nine years ago, and it's just grown ever ever since then. This is a slow. Pro- I mean, it's easy for me to tell you that story now. But again, this was over the course of several years. When when I was in my mid-20s, I got offered a chance to write a story for the alternative newspaper in Santa Cruz, California, where I'd gone to college. And I wrote the thing, and I had never written anything besides term papers or whatever. Right. And uh, they just published it. And I, and I realized I like where this is going already. I like where this is going already. And I realized that like the alternative newspaper in Santa Cruz is basically just like well, this one guy. It is an odd situation where I guess if you just go up to that guy and pitch him something, and you seem like you've got a head on your shoulders, he might just be like, "Yeah, okay." And by the time you turn it in. He doesn't have any choice to fill the space but to run it. <laughs> That's 100% exactly what happened. The fir- the very first thing I wrote was for a, n- a neighborhood newspaper called the Near Northwest Banner. Not even the Northwest Banner, the Near Northwest Banner. And it was this there was this uh, older woman and her husband and they were literally printing it up in their garage with like some machine that you turn and then they would hand them out in the <laughs> print- in the neighborhood. Are you talking about a printing press? A printing yeah. press. She had her own printing press in the garage. Her name was Frances. I'll never forget. She was the nicest person I ever met in my life. One day, Gut- one and... day Gutenberg bursts into the living room and tells his wife, <laughs> I've invented a machine, a machine that you turn. But she she was really nice, and she let me write about the Astros, and then I wrote a thing about the Texans. And, yeah, I was able to go from there. But yeah, And what's funny is you mentioned the, them going – Pizza place, pizza place. That's how I found that particular newspaper. It was in a kiosk in a neighborhood pizza parlor that I just happened to grab. And there you go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the writer Shea Serrano. His latest book is called Basketball and Other Things. It's out now. One of the amazing skills that you have as a writer is you seem to have, and it's in evidence in this basketball book, an indefatigable ability to like generate fantastical scenarios and premises for genuinely interesting uh semi-listy things <laughs> that's a very specific skill to have i think it is i mean but like one of the interesting things i think about the way that you do it is that you come up with something that is genuinely personal and specific in a format that in the rest of the internet is driven by the most banal baloney in the world, right? Like you write the interesting version of the boring thing that is internet listicles, which is usually just like, (laughs) here's seven things you recognize, (laughs) right? Right, right, right. Meanwhile, meanwhile, you're writing, uh, uh, who is basketball's? Who are the big greatest basketball villains of all time? 
that involves a complicated scenario where you're defining the exact nature of basketball villainy. Right. So uh, do you just like sit down and and write down a list of 100 things and cross 75 of them out or what? That's that's basically how it goes, yes. <laughs> you, you start out with some general ideas and then you just drill it down to get as specific as possible. Like, So the thing you're talking about here is one of the chapters in the basketball book. And I had a, originally that started out with was just a, a phrase. All I, I wrote, I had in my notes, Tower of Villains. I had no idea exactly what that was going to be until I sat down to start writing on it. And I knew I didn't want it to only be a list of like the the meanest basketball villains or whatever because that's been done already. So let's approach it from from a different angle. And yes, let's spend a lot of time talking about what it is that makes a basketball villain a basketball villain and what it is that makes him uh, or her a good villain or a bad villain. That When you get lost in those sorts of creases or folds, that to me is... It's always a little more fun than just a straight line conversation. So generally, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to take a, one broad idea and then get very, very specific with it. And then hopefully in that specificity, we have some you know general thoughts or ideas that everybody can grab onto. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Let's talk about the specifics of that list, for example. Okay. What constitutes a great basketball villain? Oh, man. Well, there were a, a bunch of bullet points I laid out in there. But, for example, one of the things when you're looking at who a top-tier villain is is they have to sort of enjoy that role. So you take somebody like a like a Reggie Miller who seems to sort of covet being called a villain and, and doing villainous things. In other arenas, he always seemed to perform better in, like a, in a New York or a Chicago or something like that against those teams. Um, do we just want to try to identify those traits? So that would be one of them. Another one is he has to be a, a player who plays a fair amount. Like you can't just be a Dante Jones on the bench who he's, you know, he's with, a, he's in the finals right now. You can't just be that guy. You've got to be out of the court. You've got to be a Steph or a LeBron or these, somebody in the action. We'll have more with Shea Serrano in a minute. Stay with us. After the break, a thorough discussion of the rapper J. Cole. But be warned, it contains some very hot takes. Takes that are going to get me some angry emails. I'm very confident. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. President Donald Trump has no record of public service, but he does have a record in business and on TV. In our latest round of stories, we introduce you to the people who were there as he built an empire and a name. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my interview with Shea Serrano in a minute. But first, we've got a brand new show at Maximum Fun that if you love Bullseye, I think that you will love. It's called Heat Rocks. Here's how it works. There's two hosts. One of them is Oliver Wang. You might know him from our show Pop Rocket. He's a sociologist, a college professor who specializes in the history of popular music. His co-host is Morgan Rhodes. She's a music supervisor who works on all kinds of projects with Ava DuVernay, like Selma and Queen Sugar. They sit down with a critic or an artist and they break down one classic album and why it's so important. This week, you can check out their conversation with Fonte from Little Brother, one of my favorite MCs and a really great, funny guy. It is uh, in-depth 
insightful, and it sounds fantastic. It's called Heat Rocks. Grab it wherever you grab your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer Shea Serrano. Let's talk about fictional basketball players. This is another of the lists in your book. Uh, yes. The greatest fictional basketball players of all time ranked. This is like almost a parody of a Grantland or the Ringer article. Yeah. The, uh, so this one is not set up in that specific fashion. It, it's a, it, If we're doing an, an NBA draft and we're drafting, you can only pick players from basketball team, from TV shows or, or movies, then... Let's figure out what order all of those guys um, or girls would go in. How many? But yes, I love this. I love this conversation. How many of these TV TV shows and movies had you seen, and how many did you have to see in order to write this piece? I had probably seen about seventy percent of them, and then I had to watch the other thirty percent. It was a long time. That was that's a three part chapter. It's about nine thousand words total. <laughs> It's like it's 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 a lot. Yeah, I spent several weeks working on on that section. You've thrown so much of your life down that hole. Uh, yes, it was it was way too much time. That's a big part of the reason I was late. I turned the book in several months late because it was always way more research than I was anticipating. But yeah, once you get started in that, like you you want to do a good job. You don't want to leave stuff out. You want to make sure you have considered all of the parts that need to be considered. It's a it's a lot, man. What kind of basketball? Do you like to watch contentious basketball? If I have to describe it in one word, contentious. I like when the teams don't like each other, and everybody knows it. And we're just going to go out here and we're going to try to embarrass our opponent. That's what, that's the basketball I like the most. Was Michael Jordan the most beautiful basketball player ever, or is that just because I was ten years old at the time? There's definitely an argument that he was the most beautiful, most graceful player. You, Of course, you have to have somebody like maybe his biggest competition is going to be Dr. J, who before I'd written the book, I'd not watched very much of his gameplay. And then I got to watch him and be like, wow, this this guy is like if a poem had come to life. That's the way he moves on the court. Just very svelte. And you can't see it right now, but I'm moving side to side in my chair like the wind is blowing me. Like that's what I do whenever I think about Dr. J on a basketball court. It's probably between him and Jordan as far as the most beautiful. How long did you work as a teacher while you were writing? Nine years I was a teacher. And nine years I was writing, maybe probably eight years I was writing of those nine years teaching. So how long ago did you quit teaching? 2015, July of 2015. I'll never forget it. I mean, was that like when you became a best-selling author? Or <laughs> like that's not very long ago, man. <laughs> I know. I, I I get the sense when I talk to people that they think I've been a full-time writer for very long. When that isn't the case at all, I left teaching in July of 2015, and I was working at Grantland at the time, and that was so. July from 2015 is when I started full-time writing, but then in October, ESPN shut down Grantland. And that was the end of my like full time writing career was four months until I started again at the Ringer in July of two thousand sixteen. But yeah, the the rap yearbook came out in October of two thousand fifteen, so I quit right before the the rap yearbook came out. You taught some of the toughest kinds of uh 
students to teach. I mean, you taught like English language learners in middle school. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no more challenging teaching job. I mean, just hanging out with middle schoolers that much is quite a challenge. Um, yes. I mean, we all went to middle school. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to be 12. Um, but those are like the, that's like you put yourself in the toughest positions you possibly could be in. Right. I, I wasn't thinking about it that way. And I don't want to make it seem like I was in the middle of this combat zone. Like I was, te- I was teaching the, the, the English language learners and the special ed and the behavior groups. Uh, but I also had regular ed or, or a couple of pre AP classes over those nine years. And it was always a situation where those those kids, as long as they feel like you want to be in the classroom with them, then you, your life ain't that hard. You, if they know you 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 care, then they start to care too. And it does it does take a little while in the beginning. My first year, I just got skewered. It was a total disaster. I was horrible at teaching, and. But I, I could feel myself every morning wanting to, like, figure it out. I'm going to eventually figure this out if I stick with it is how I felt. And then once I started to get good at it, and I was like, oh, man, I had some kids who did well this year or several years into it. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting invitations from kids who are graduating high school or who got into a college. Like, that was a big uh, a big thing for me. So, yeah, it wasn't like a, a just this terrible situation, like a dangerous minds gunshots going off around the classroom we were just in a we were in south houston it was a predominantly hispanic area the school was like 98 99 i mean 98 97 percent hispanic it was a title one school most of the kids were on free lunch like but that was the neighborhood the houston version of where i grew up in san antonio we i was in that same middle school and high school and it all felt very natural when i was in there and like it felt like that's where i was supposed to be it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is shay serrano His new book is called Basketball and Other Things. It's out now. A lot of the teachers that I remember most vividly from the public, urban public high school that I went to were the ones who just seemed like they didn't consider it a burden that I was in their class. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. You you want a kid, you make a kid feel like he's wanted or she's wanted. You give a kid a nickname. If you give a kid a nickname, that kid will run through a wall for you. That's all it is because they know you care at least a little bit about them. You, I started calling a kid laser or whatever, <laughs> turbo, <laughs> turbo. And I, I was taking names from like old movies I saw. Oh, these two kids are always hanging out together. You guys are turbo and ozone. And like, why are you calling us turbo and ozone? I tried to explain this from an old breakdancing movie. It didn't make any sense to them. <laughs> I don't know what breakdancing is, but they knew their names were Turbo and Ozone. And then after that, I never had any issues with Turbo and Ozone ever again. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, this is like <laughs> these little things work. <laughs> were, were all the nicknames from Breaking or were there like some crush? <laughs> were there some crush groove nicknames at all? No, I had them. I had them from all over, man. You would just take a name and switch it up a little bit. And, but I, I very... In my head, I can see still see Turbo and Ozone. I also had a Harvard and Stanford, these two girls one year who were always sitting together at their own little table, and I was like trying to encourage them to to try a little harder. I started calling them that them that, and then like at the end of the year, we had our graduation ceremony, and Harvard's dad came up to me, 
and was like almost in tears. And he was straight up like, hey, nobody has ever given my kid. Like you started calling her Harvard. And then all of a sudden she started talking about maybe she's going to go to college. And it was like, whoa, you don't realize it until maybe the end of it. But all that little stuff adds up. Like the, that's why you remember the teachers you remember. I wanted to be that guy in the in the community. And I screwed up a bunch of stuff. I don't want to make it seem like I was just this phenomenal teacher who never messed anything up. I messed a lot of situations up. I was just trying to do more good than harm. Are there parts of your life as a teacher that you miss? Yes, absolutely. You teaching was was I think the most meaningful job to me that I that I ever had and it it ended up being a, way more of like an emotional commitment than I had anticipated going into it. I knew Wait, I always hold, wanted to be a hold teacher. On, Jay, hold on, Chet. You're telling okay. me that teaching was more emotionally meaningful than ranking the greatest fictional basketball players <laughs> of all time? <laughs> yeah. Yes, Jesse. Just keep on poking me in my eye about it. Yes. That is a, that is true. It was really, it was like a touching experience to be in the classroom with those kids for as long as I was. You you know you don't uh, you don't end, I, maybe because I went into it I was really young I was twenty four twenty five when I started maybe twenty six and uh, and you don't anticipate the way that you connect with with these kids or the way that what happens to them sort of affects you so yeah I think about it all the time especially when you get around the big things like anytime August rolls around that's always a, a tough time for me because I know the teachers are going through the you know getting ready for the new year and. Or anytime you get around from like March to March through April, which is the big testing period, like I can feel myself leaning toward that world at, at in those moments. I think about it a lot, man. I don't want our conversation to end without addressing um, a really important issue in your life and career. Um, <laughs> uh oh, something that something that I myself think about a lot. Okay. And something that a lot of people have reached out to me about on the internet and suggested that I talk to you about. This is this is our a setup. Um I feel like it's not going to be important at all, but go for it. It's the rapper J Cole. Yeah, I knew it was him. I knew it was him. Was it was either him or LaMarcus Aldridge? The super one of those two guys. The superstar rapper J Cole. Yes. How do you feel about J Cole? J. Cole is the greatest rapper of our generation. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> how, do, how do you like that, Jesse? No, I there are there are two parts of J. Cole for, for me. There's J. Cole as a human who by all accounts is a phenomenal person and just absolutely getting into heaven immediately. He seems like a very that nice he, man. He's like he's like one of the first star rappers ever to be uh, proud of the fact that he went to college. Yeah, he's great. He seems like a lot of fun and just a sweet guy. And a buddy of mine w- has worked with him on on this project or that project, and he tells tells me the same thing. Like in private, he is just as as sincere and thoughtful as he appears to be in public. So that I'm that part. There's no arguing there. J. Cole is a is a great person. And I would never try to deny the way he makes other people feel. He gives people this very strong sense of self, which which I appreciate and respect. But as far as his music goes, Jesse, as far as his music goes, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that to you. I don't wanna <laughs> listen to those I don't wanna listen to those songs, Jesse. They're just not 
exciting. You know when you listen to a song and you, even if you don't know anything about it, you just feel it in your chest. And you're like, mm, I like I get where this guy's coming from, or I understand what this woman is singing about. Like I feel it. I don't. I never have ever gotten that feeling with J. Cole. He's like the human version of the last thirty minutes of a comedy movie where they try to get very serious and philosophical, but they're just saying a bunch of regular things. Like that's what J. Cole's music feels like to me. Well, I've I've used up all my time, but I'm very grateful. Uh, I'm very grateful that you came on the show. It was really nice to get to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. Shay Serrano. His book, Basketball and Other Things, is out now. Shay's writing is great. It is also gorgeously illustrated by the artist Arturo Torres. Make sure and grab a copy ASAP, unless Shay's online cult of personality has purchased all of the copies. Last time I checked, he had like 20,000 pre-orders. Positive vibes in the internet. Sometimes they do work. We're almost to the end of another episode of Bullseye, but first, a recommendation from me. We call it the outshot. So my favorite baseball team lost 98 games this year. It's the San Francisco Giants. If you don't follow baseball, 98 is a lot of losses. In fact, it was the most in the league. And before the year, everybody thought the Giants would end up in the playoffs. Basically, by the time it was late April... It was clear that the wheels were falling off. For a lot of Giants fans, a year this bad is torture. And I can't say I loved it. I mean, I've been spoiled by 25 years of good teams, recently three World Series, a team that always seemed to punch above its weight. But for me, with a baseball team, it's okay. My favorite football team won two and lost 14 last year, and then they cut my favorite player. That was brutal. For decades, my favorite basketball team was awful. I mean, just horrible. They had one good year in 20. It was tough to watch. But with baseball, somehow it's easier. Some of the things that people say about baseball, to put it down, are actually kind of true. I mean, it's kind of pedestrian and boring. It's a long, slow march of the seasons. I mean, I'm not the first to say this, but it's hope in the spring then that long, hard summer. And when the weather starts to turn, the leaves fall off the vine. You know, because, I don't know, I guess because everything dies. But you know, even when that's happening, that the green is going to come back in the spring. In baseball also, anyone can win on any day. It's not a thrilling sport. But it's a companion. And in baseball, there's always tomorrow. So if Pablo Sandoval can't swat mistakes over the left field wall like he used to, you'd actually kind of hardly notice day to day. And every time some rookie replacement you've never heard of runs out into left field, it kind of seems like he could be your new favorite guy. I mean, for me, basically... The main thing is that if I'm clumping around in the kitchen, chopping onions or whatever, the ball game's on the radio. It's there for me. Honestly, I kind of pity the fans of a juggernaut. How awful it must be to root for the Yankees. Think that you're going to win every year and then be disappointed if you don't. 
or be a Red Sox fan and have that bitter pride, but then have it taken away from you when you actually win. All you have left is a couple World Series trophies. I think I might be happier as a comfortable, honorable loser. I mean, a world championship is great when it happens, but losing is an old friend. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. This week we saw a dog swimming in the lake. Don't let your dog swim in that lake. It is a gross lake. It's full of garbage and poop. People hug their dogs. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Kevin Ferguson, is currently taunting me with both a Dodgers hat and a Dodgers t-shirt. I literally feel physically ill in the booth right now. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Casey is a Twins fan. That's, that's more my speed. Christian, I think, just likes playing video games. Our production fellows here at MaximumFun.org are Nick Liao and Khalid Moalim. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Find them at MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We've got a bunch more info about the show there. Sneak peeks to upcoming interviews. Lots of useful information that we found on the Internet. For example, Kevin just posted the Wikipedia article for the song. I didn't know where that came from. It's fascinating. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.